Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we are set to continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 8. Now, one of the questions that continues to come up is whether or not we have found Noah's Ark. Certainly, with the Ark that was built uh, in Kentucky that I was talking about last week, that generated a lot of questions about Noah's Ark. And um, so we are going to talk briefly here in a little bit about whether or not Noah's Ark has been found. And more specifically, <laughs> what I'm going to talk about and speak to are the accounts or claims that, that people have. And we are going to draw principally from uh, Dr. Snelling. Dr. Snelling is a professor of geology at the University of Sydney, and he has done his homework. And as I was doing my own homework, I came across some of his writing, and he speaks to uh, the potential findings of the Ark. So what I'm going to do is actually just read some of him and kind of give commentary to, to his thoughts. But before we get into that, what I did want to do is go into the book of Genesis and read chapter 8, verses 1 to 19. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 19. So if you can pull your Bibles out. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of the forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made and sent forth a raven. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put forth his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God said to Noah, Go forth from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. 
Bring forth with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. So Noah went forth, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. And every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves upon the earth, went forth by families out of the ark. Amen. All right, so the great subsiding of the flood, huh? Uh, just a couple of remarks before we get into this article by Snelling. Um, this opening verse, verse 1, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. God remembered. I love that. So really what you have here is both the midpoint and turning point of the flood narrative when, when God begins to drain the prevailing waters off the earth. The Hebrew word for wind um, can also be rendered what? But spirit. Along with certainly other parallels to the creation story, this detail <laughs> clearly shows and recalls how the Spirit of God hovered above the primordial waters in the opening chapter uh, verse 2, before the dry land appeared in verse 9. Again, the author echoing the story of creation is very important. Now, what about Mount Ararat? Well, here is why I want to turn to Dr. Snelling. So he has a piece titled, Is Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat? You can find this online. Again, this is Dr. Andrew Snelling, and this article is titled, Is Noah's Ark on on Mount Ararat. So I'm not going to go through all of this. We don't have the time to go through all of this. One of the points among many that he makes is that, first of all, sacred scripture doesn't speak to so much Mount Ararat as much as the mountains of Ararat, right? What do we read in verse 4? And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest upon the mountains of Ararat. So he first of all throws out the disclaimer that if we are looking for the ark exclusively on one mountain, we could be looking in the wrong area. Now what he gets into here is the geology. So he gets into things like flood sediment, uh, lava flows, um, how uh, the earth ages and all of that. But he does make some interesting observations about the many claims that I think many of us are aware of, certainly those of you who have been asking me about whether or not Noah's Ark has been found. Maybe the most popular is that uh, Ark-like outcrop that came to us from that famous satellite image in 2003. I remember I was on a, a plane, and uh, I turned on the History Channel, and there they were talking about Noah's Ark, and their whole program was devoted to uh, this satellite image. And this is what Dr. Snelling has to say. This satellite image from 2003 shows an arc-shaped object jutting out of the side of Ararat. Investigators were hoping to get a better image of an original grainy photograph taken by a plane in 1949. That photograph showed a large structure jutting out of the ice and snow known as the Ararat Anomaly. It is difficult to determine the object's size or whether the images were taken at the same site. Some arc hunters hope this might be their next big break, 
But geologists say the object simply looks like a rock outcropping that only appears arc-like when snow and ice melt in the right spots. To date, the Turkish government has not permitted an expedition to explore the site. So what does that mean? Well, to this one particular satellite image, we don't know. There's certainly nothing conclusive. You can side either way on this one, quite frankly. I think there's more to be had here. I think there could be something there until further expedition is allowed. We just don't know. I think there is something to be said about, you know, some geologists saying that this could simply be an arc-like appearance based upon snow melt and ice melt. But anyhow, uh, there could be more there. What about these other claims? Another popular claim is that someone pulled a beam from the ark. There was a 1993 CBS program titled The Incredible Discovery of Noah's Ark, and, and it featured a Frenchman who reported he found a wooden beam in a crevice on Ararat and saw a large dark object under the ice in 1955. Now, more about this, and this here again is Dr. Snelling, Fernand Navarre's son. He was the Frenchman, shot black and white film footage of his father carrying the beam down the mountain. Now, as Snelling notes, if you were to go back into the program, uh, the program described the wood's radiocarbon age as 5,000 years. But <laughs> testing by six labs concluded that the wood was less than 2,000 years old. Incidentally, members of the expedition said that Navarra purchased the wood in town and carried it up the mountain before he quote-unquote discovered it. Well, <laughs> therein lies your problem, right? So here you have, in 1993, all of this attention, all of this devotion given to this particular wooden beam, title it The Incredible Discovery of Noah's Ark, and it's just one big hoax. Uh, now, what about the ark-shaped formation? This is Dr. Snelling. Earthquakes and heavy rain exposed a large arc-shaped formation in 1948. The site, named Durupinar, was designated a national park in Turkey and is easier to get to than all of the other main arc locations. A man by the name of Ron Wyatt claimed to have found multiple artifacts in the area to bolster his assertion that the object is indeed the arc. Okay, this arc-shaped formation. However, geologists and archaeologists have studied the site and rejected it, concluding it is merely one of many similar geologic formations in the region. Many of these researchers were Christians who would love to find the Ark. Um, and that's important, my friends. Something I, I have yet to mention, when it comes to research, geological research, geological expeditions, a lot of these folks, scientists, are Christians, Right, So they are looking for any evidence to support the claim that Noah is on a particular mountaintop. Right? So you're not dealing with just exclusively atheists here. Certainly there are some atheists, but you are dealing with a lot of uh, Christian scientists that would love to say that they have found the Ark. But they're scientists, right? So they're not going to go against their scientific nature. All right, what about the, the claim that the interior of the Ark has been found? Uh, this is Dr. Snelling. After a Turkish guide claimed to discover interior compartments of the Ark, a Hong Kong ministry, acronym NAMI, sent a team to the site. In 2010, the team announced that they had recovered wooden specimens 
which they believed were part of the ark. They produced a video and shared several photos of team members inside the structure. Evidence of possible fraud was rife, Snelling claims. The Kurdish man who led the team did not allow the team's experts to visit the site, and the research and reports had numerous inconsistencies. Certainly, my friends, when you talk about any kind of scientific research, what are you looking for, right? But what is consistent? As Snelling continues, for the reports of visits to the site, including claims of the discovery of archaeological artifacts, there are vague. Radiocarbon dating of wood claimed to come from this site yielded ages that are far too recent to be from the Ark. Some pieces are even dated as modern wood, and some have machining marks that appear to be from modern wood planers. What about uh, the beam-shaped rocks that were talked about in 2006? This was another thing that came up within your questions. Dr. Snelling notes, a man by the name of Bob Kornuki led a team of 14 Americans to visit a region in Iran where a World War II veteran claimed he saw the Ark. At Mount Suleiman, the team claimed to have visited an object 13,000 feet above sea level, which had the appearance of blackened, petrified wood. Kornuki's organization, the BASE, Bible Archaeological Search and Exploration Institute, identifies this site as the one the veteran saw. Despite these assertions, geologists say the beam has all the appearance of common geologic formation when fine layers of rock are upended and eroded, but BASE did not do any lab testing, so we're just kind of left with inquiring minds want to know more. So anyhow, I go through some of that, my friends, because A, you were asking me about those specific finds and whether they were valid or not. I thought it was important to turn to a man to the stature of Dr. Snelling to reflect into that a bit. Something to be present to is what we were talking about yesterday in relationship to the authenticity of the flood narrative and, for that matter, the authenticity of the ark. When you have in the New Testament references to the flood narrative, what you then have is just not the relevance of the flood narrative, but to some degree an authentication of what took place. Certainly this was not only spoken of in the New Testament, but as well the church fathers. So something to be present to there. Incidentally, it should be noted that uh, some expeditions have been okayed in the near future. So I'm sure you are going to be seeing this in the news and something to be present to. There is something to be said about finding an archaeological structure that was in sacred scripture, especially when you are talking about the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus. It certainly does enhance one faith. And be rest assured, my friends, we have found some extraordinary things that are in the Bible, right? So when you talk about what took place in the Bible and the potential of archaeological discoveries, we have found things, and as we have found things, um, yeah, these things enrich the faith. Okay, so returning back to the narrative itself, and just key points here. You know, verses 6 to 12, where Noah sends out a raven and a dove in search for um, habitable land. Take note, my friends, what the dove brings back, but an olive leaf, an olive leaf. What do we read in verse 11? And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth a freshly plucked 
olive leaf. What is extracted from an olive leaf? But oil, right? What did oil signify in the Old Testament? Mercy, mercy. And this, my friends, is what the narrative of Noah is all about, right? God's mercy. And something else, the olive leaf also symbolizes what? But peace, peace. Okay, what about verse 13, the first month, the first day? So the waters are gone by the beginning of the new year, signifying what? But a new beginning for the world. huh? And now this marks 10 and a half months since the flood began. If you would go back into chapter 7, verse 11, this marks exactly 10 and a half months since the flood began. What does that mean? Well, that Noah and his family stayed aboard the ark for another two months, meaning that they will have lived in the vessel of the ark for over a year. For over a year. Okay, what about verse 17 here? Just scrolling down some other key verses. Bring forth with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. Right? So here you have a renewal of the blessing and mandate given specifically to all the fish and birds at creation. Um, if you were to go back into chapter 1, verse 22, what do we read there? And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. Again, echoing the creation narrative. Uh, something else that we should appreciate, I was talking about them being on this vessel for a year, Yes, we talked last week about the length of the ark and how big this ark was and, and how it could have actually contained all of the animals it says it contained. But my dear friends, you are dealing with some seriously close quarters. Yesterday when we were wrapping up, I made the point that, that we need to really spend time with the sacred text so that God could speak to us in just not the externals and, and what this narrative is saying on the outside, but intuitively, what the Spirit is wishing to reveal to you. When I was rereading this text before this evening, the one thing that struck me was, well, <laughs> you have this household living in these very closed quarters among hundreds and hundreds of animals. So you had an ark that probably stunk to the high heaven, right? And then you had to deal with those closest to you without going anywhere for over a year. I mean, think about that. I think we just kind of pass by this point. But apply this to your everyday life. How many of you have said, man, I just need to get away. I just need to go somewhere. I need to take a break. Even, even, to those that you love, right? Sometimes we just need to get away for an afternoon. Sometimes we need to go on retreat. My dear friends, <laughs> Noah and his household could not do this. And not only could they not do this, but they had to deal with all of their humanity among hundreds and hundreds of animals. Now, I have four kids, and they all love animals. But... 
when they sting to the high heavens and you have to deal with all of the minutia that dealing with animals is about, you can only imagine what Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives had to deal with. It's something to think about because when the going gets tough, we say the tough get going. Well, <laughs> for Noah, where did they go? Right? They couldn't go anywhere. So the going for Noah was to look in the mirror, not that they had mirrors in those days, but to look in the mirror, right, and to take a long, hard look at self. I personally was deeply moved by this simple point. I am one who can appreciate just kind of getting out, the need to stretch the legs, right, go for a walk, go for a run. Um, They couldn't do any of this, right? And so something to be mindful of as you think about the concreteness of what this narrative entails. Okay, what about the rest of chapter 8 here and God's promise to Noah? We read in verses 20 to 22, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 to 22 deals with that much larger, uh, wider covenant motif that we have talked about in the past. I mean, did you hear verses 20 and 21? Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. It's the first thing that he does. And took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart what he said. So here we have an altar an offering, an offering of what? Sacrifice. Once Noah offers up to God this pleasing and acceptable sacrifice, he enters into covenant relationship with God. And this is quintessential because sacrifice is the hallmark to any great covenant, right? You see this here with Noah, and consequently, you see it with Abraham, Moses, David, once the sacrifice is offered, God enters into covenant relationship with man. God essentially draws deeper into covenant life with man. This is not only important for what we are talking about here in the book of Genesis chapter 8, and for that matter, the Old Testament, but Jesus, right? When he says in Mark chapter 14, verse 24, this is the blood of the new covenant, Jesus Christ becomes the offering. And as such, in and through Jesus Christ, we enter into deeper covenant relationship with him. It could be said that Noah prefigures Jesus and this offering prefigures the cross, right? This is what we call typology, the study of types, the study of patterns, the study of of the way in which we find Christ lay hidden 
and shadowy symbols, as St. Thomas Aquinas would say, all very important. Chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. How about, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, huh? They were pure animals. It was a pure offering. Thus to God the Father, it was a sweet and acceptable offering. What is pure is whole. What is pure is sweet. What is pure is what is necessary. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. The word for purity in that beatitude is katharos. That Greek translates the Old Testament priestly Levitical context of being pure. The Levitical priest had to be pure before he offered up the Holocaust. Why? Because in that purity, it would have been holy and acceptable. It would have been sweet. So when we read that beatitude about being pure in spirit, for, for we shall see God, part of that being pure is becoming a holy and acceptable offering unto God. So there's many permutations, if you will, to this passage when we start to probe deeper. And I don't want to get too theological here, but I do find this to be very important. And I know for some of you, you find this kind of thing uh, quite relevant. Okay, with that, we will stop Next Monday, we will pick up our treatment of Genesis uh, in chapter 9, and we will continue our reflection into the great patriarch of Noah. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.